Welcome to the Movies on the Brain podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brian C. Wood, and with me this evening is DC fanboy. <laughs> Damn it. Welcome to another weird, wild, and wacky week in the world of genre movie news. So, Chad, very rare is it the opportunity for uh, sports and, and movies to collide. And yet they have. They have in King Richard, which uh, is a very popular movie, and Will Smith getting all the acclaim that he rightly deserves. But the, uh, the story of King Richard is about the Williams sisters. And as a result, the Williams sisters are producers on the film, which means they were in attendance last night at the Critics' Choice Awards uh, when one uh, director of The Power of Dog decided she needed to make comments comparing herself to the Williams sisters. What say you, sir, about Jane Compton saying that Venus and Serena don't play against the boys like she does? Oh, man. It's, look, this is a... This is an example of how quickly things turn on social media. Because literally the day before, she, Jane was getting all the accolades for rightly, you know, um, I, I guess criticizing, but uh, commenting on um, Sam, and I just lost his last name. Just Sam quick. Elliott. Sam Elliott. Uh, Mr. Sam Mr. Elliott. I'm in every cowboy movie short of Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Um, his comments about the power of the dog um, and I haven't heard the comments because I haven't seen the movie yet so I didn't want to like really look too yeah, far so, into so there is a uh, there's a veiled like, so how do I put this one of the thematic elements of the film is the idea of the closet and how one wrestles with the closet and how one projects themselves in the outside world and how one that helps one survive. Um, and it, it's basically the word homosexual is never used. There are no characters that are ever outed, but it's always an implied thing. And what you get in the film is kind of this duality of the butch, really hard-nosed, make fun of people, throw it back in your face, putting up a front, you know, this big tough guy, macho man, putting up a front so no one sees what's inside and figures out what he really is versus the flamboyant, artsy, very, you know, openly, um, openly different guy. And so it's it's the dubbing tale, the, the tale of those two and the two different ways in which that can be played out in 1800s Montana. And part of the idea is, is that Elliot's comments were basically, why do you have to make a gay cowboy movie? Uh, as if he's never seen Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> and and the movie isn't gay. It's it's about because it's closet but it's not a gay movie in the way that call me by your name is a movie purely about the coming of age and sexuality and homosexuality and finding yourself as a homosexual in these awkward relationships with older men and all these things it's not a movie like that uh and by the way for your music nerds out there killer score 
like very like get inside of your head and not let you go score. Um, but like Elliot was basically like, why do you have to go make a gay cowboy movie? Cowboys should be rough and tough and gunslinging and, and all of those things. And Compton's comments were basically, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> the point is that gay cowboys did exist and they had to hide themselves with these exteriors to protect themselves from being persecuted or ridiculed. And sometimes they persecuted and ridiculed others to help put up a facade so that no one saw what they were, they really were. And so, you know, he, ba- she basically tells him to go fly a kite because there were gay cowboys. And so that, that's how that went. So, yeah, so that was, that was literally the day before and the Oscar luncheon. I think I think it was either an Oscar luncheon or if it was a, another award show or something. I don't think it was a award show, so it must be the luncheon, but, uh, yeah, her comments were all over Twitter about uh, um, about what what Elliot said, and everybody was giving her giving her applause and rightly recognizing how she told him exactly where to get off. And the next night, she makes these comments about unlike uh, Venus and Serena, she actually has to compete against the boys, which is. Yeah, it's I, it's hard to explain to somebody that does not understand how that is a slight to them that it is a slight. But to say it, it diminishes what they are because in their competition they 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 don't physically have to compete with the men. However, they are still competing. They they still have to achieve more than men to get the recognition that they have because they are women. So for i if you want to give her the benefit of the doubt she doesn't mean it to be a slight to them however in the history of of all these things particularly with white women and black women to say something like that is automatically going to be a slight to them it automatically diminishes their accomplishments and social media lit her on fire for for these compliments i i've seen that she has since apologize for them. I saw pictures of after the award show where she actually met uh, Serena, I think it was just at least, no, Venus for sure. Uh, I don't know if Serena was there. Uh, and she gave an apology. So so there's that. But it's, it's just the fact that I understand giving speeches in the moment, you can get lost and you might say some things that you don't really mean. But to come out and say that, it uh it at the very least it took away all the goodwill she had just built up literally the day before. And it it it's, to me it's called, it underscores something that is uh I mean it is a systemic problem that we keep going that we keep going through. And this could be a moment where people can actually learn from this and learn about why this is an issue, or people can you know, be binary and take take the two sides. And one, she didn't mean any harm. The other one, uh, you know, that it is completely offensive. If I had to choose them closer to the completely offensive, but I I understand there's nuance involved. And 
it will take the nuance for people to really understand where the uh, the side that is offended comes from. Yeah, I mean, Billie Jean King has multiple majors to her name and multiple tennis facilities named after her. And no one ever remembers the fact that she was a, a fantastic uh, woman's tennis player. They just know her as a great tennis player. And they know her as the, the woman who competed on national television against Bobby Riggs in the Battle of the Sexes. And like, here's the problem that I had with the comments. Um, we are on the verge, and I think we still will. Um, we're on the verge of having back-to-back female Oscar winners for Best Director, which is a huge accomplishment. Because I think we're also going to get a female uh, Best Original Screenplay or Best Adapted Screenplay winner in Maggie Gyllenhaal as well. Um, there's going to be more representation female-wise winning at this Oscars than there probably has been ever. And that's an amazingly great thing. The fact that people like, you know, like Compton had directed before and the fact that she had to come back and, and get funding from Netflix and along with the BBC which, by the way, I am fairly certain that is going to be the Academy's workaround is that the BBC had fun, a fundraising, a funding hand in The Power of Dog. So they're not technically awarding Netflix. Um, I think that's the way that they'll get around that if they choose to go that, that way. Um, but it's an incredible film and it's a beautiful Western and it's a, a fantastic performance by Cumberbatch. And Plummins is doing you know, his, his small little intimacy thing. But Kirsten Dunst, man, you know, the, the pain of a mother being psychologically abused is, uh, is something hard to pull off. And she does it amazingly beautifully. Um, but like, for me, the comments were damaging because it's like, you're not better or worse because of who you compete against. It's about you being better than them. And, like, why would you want to be considered better because you compete against other male directors? Like, it's the workplace. Like, the nature of the industry is that you're beating your butt to outdo all the guys because you've got to get your pitch out there and you've got to get your pitch approved. Like, in, that's inherent to the system. Because male directors outnumber female directors by a great number. So you have to inherently, you know, you have to inherently be competing against them. But you're also just competing against the world. And that's the way Venus and Serena have approached their careers from, from jump has been us against the world. From the time they were uh, doubles contenders in, at the U.S. Open in the late 90s. Like, it has been them against the world. And... You know, I, I think that's something that those two, those three people have in common. And I wish that that would have been highlighted a bit more. And I think probably what happened was she was standing up on stage and she caught Venus and Serena in her eyesight and made the connection and blurted it out, basically, is what happened, I think. I'm glad she retracted her statement. But ultimately, in the end, like, you don't need to be comparing yourself to other dudes. You don't need to be comparing yourself to other women. You just need to be thankful that you had like 
that you're blazing this pathway and creating a way for more women to follow after you to make the academy a more diverse place. Yeah. I, I like, like because, because of her success, Netflix is going to be able to give more money to more female filmmakers to make more movies. Because of, because of uh, uh, Chloe Zhao's um, you know, win last year, it opens the door for more women to get hired on big budget movies like a Marvel movie. You know, it opens those doorway, those pathways and those doors, those doors for people. And, you know, then the same can be said for people who haven't won awards like Mamie Driver and, um, you know, Patty Jenkins and, and Sofia Coppola. And, you know, even though she's won Oscar, Kathleen Bigelow, like, you know, think about the amount of time that it took for us to go from Sofia Coppola to to um uh to uh Catherine Bigelow and now the amount of time it's going to take us to go from Zhao to uh Compton like one year versus five ten fifteen fifty like we're getting there and we're getting there because of these women who are proving to the world that they can make compelling and interesting films and I just wish she would have pushed that a bit more in her speech as she has in other times, because this isn't the first time she's won the award this year. She's given other other speeches where she's focused on those kind of things. And I wish she would have in this yeah. case. Yeah. Completely agree. Do you believe she lost herself an Oscar last night? Because I don't. Oh, no, no, no. The, uh, they've already ca- uh, closed off the voting, right? I, we went through the calendar. I don't exactly remember when voting stopped, but uh, even if it hasn't, like there are enough ballots in, you know, it's like those, uh, like those Heisman voters who send their ballot in before championships on Saturday. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, you know, the guy can go out and tear his ACL on championship Sunday. It's not going to matter. He's already racked up enough votes to win the Heisman. It's, yeah. it's kind of the same type of deal here. I think, I think she's, She's racked up enough wins on the on the uh, award on the uh, uh, branch circuit to uh, uh, the guild circuit to to indicate that she's going to be the winner. I'm not going to look it up, but I would I would imagine that. Um, I mean, this is what two weeks until the show. I would I would. Imagine that they will want like at least two weeks to get everything in, but I think, I think she's fine. I I don't. If the voting's closed, then of course she's fine because she made all these. She made her dumb comments after the voting was closed. If not, like you said, I think there's enough that's already in, and enough that even if they haven't sent it in, they're not going to change their mind. Uh, these comments aren't going to change their mind. So, yeah, if she was going to win before, I think she's still going to win now. This doesn't change anything. Give me a second, because now, now you've got uh, you've got me curious. Um, yeah, I know we looked over the dates. I just cannot remember the last date. I I thought it would have been like during the first week of this month that they cut off voting. So, uh, 
so Oscar voting, the nomination voting closed on February 1st. The, the, the nominations were announced on February 8th. Mm-hmm. And then the, uh, the, Oscar, the Oscar voting ends on the 17th. On the 17th, so that's three days from now. I would think most of the haze in the barn by now. So I don't think there's an, I don't think this did enough to sway the remaining voters enough. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Um, also, it was the because uh, we were asking about or talking about who was uh, where those comments were made. It was made at the Directors Guild uh, because the Directors Guild awards were the night before. Um, okay. So that's where that those those comments came from on the red carpet, the director's guild where she won. Yeah. There may have been people that waited until these last two awards to be like, I'm on the fence. Let's see who they give it to. I'll give it to them too. I don't think that's anything. I just before. I just think there's too much hay in the barn there. And and I think and Jim and Jim agrees. Uh it's just like we're we're in this position now where it's like and he's interested, as I am, about poor Kristen Stewart, who's just basically showing up to put on a dress to go to a party. She is, you know, it, it's it's from front runner status in November to like, I'm just here so I don't get fined. That's the way it goes sometimes. I mean, maybe she pulls off a surprise, but. I mean, the know. only one I can think of in, in my life that like I can think of like that was uh, when Birdman came out, everybody was 100% sure it was going to be Keaton. And then old, old Eddie Redmayne scooted his way in there and made poor Batman put his speech back in his pocket. Man, that, it makes it worse because it's, so many people actually saw the moment that Keaton shoved the speech back in his touch. Uh, that's what makes that one thing, it has to say that much more. Yeah, and, and and like Jen said too on Twitter, I think with Chastain there is kind of now this inevitability of it's her time to finally get rewarded when she didn't get rewarded for uh, nocturnal animals or um, n- not nocturnal. I think it was nocturnal animals, and then uh, scenes from a marriage, and of course uh, eyes of Tammy Faye, um, and the litany of other great performances that she's had that she's been nominated for. So I think that there's kind of a, a, a notion of her time where Stewart just kind of caught everybody by surprise by doing this amazing performance. And then people just randomly forgot it, which may actually point to, you know, if you have a studio that is putting together an actual awards campaign for you, it might help. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know mean, a lot of people like to think that, you know, the art speaks for itself, but no, they can't pay for this stuff. Me, me and you are both old enough to remember Selma not getting screeners out quickly enough. And so we're getting bypassed for the majority of the guilds because it just couldn't get screeners out to people on time. Yeah, I forgot that happened. Yeah, that was a major fail, major fail. You can't, you can't do that, especially if you think you have that type of movie. Yeah, and you have to, you have to get that, like you have to know that, right? You have to look at the film and evaluate the film and know what you have and and decide that this is the thing we're going to push bigger studios have three or four things they get to push right mm-hmm. um but like smaller smaller studios don't have five things to push they've got to decide on the one they want to put their money behind 
And sometimes it can catch you unawares. And if it does, a film is going to suffer and a performance that should be recognized is going to, you know, uh, go unrecognized. Some people were mentioning this week, everybody's talking about Paul Dano because of uh, his, his performance as the Riddler. Uh, but they forget that Paul Dano directed a movie which had a great female performance in it that went overlooked and should have been nominated for an Oscar, but because the studio didn't put an Oscar campaign together properly for her, she went unnominated. So like that, you know, that's also, I think, part the part to play with Spencer. Yeah. That's a shame because um, when that movie came out, most of the people I know that know movies were raving about her performance in that movie and um just judging off of how they thought of it it seemed like far and away like the performance to beat and yeah and, and like you said as, as time has gone on i've heard less and less about it like I, and i know i haven't seen it but i know it exists but it's only until somebody says something about it that i'm like oh yeah that's right that's the thing so because eyes of tammy faye is available on hbo max and and spencer yeah. you have to rent or buy yep yep eyes of tammy faye is sitting in my queue right now it has been since the day it showed up on hbo max and yeah if spencer would show up on one of the streaming services i would put it in my queue too just to go have and take a look but i considering that it's like probably to rent uh I don't go to those first, so I don't ever see it. I don't, I don't see those. Uh, so you have to, at least for me, my, for my streaming habits, I have to go make an effort to go and see stuff that's out that I would have to rent as opposed to things that are already just on streaming. Indeed. So Chad, the Batman and its incredible score are now racking up box office millions. Your thoughts are on the Batman soloing his way to millions of dollars and people speculating randomly about who should be in the sequel. Um, well, judging by how long it took us to get to this movie from, we've, we've been at this for five years. Granted, I'm going to give it to him. There was a COVID year in there. This movie should have come out in 2020 but even still that's still four years it took four years for us to get to from the announcement of matt reeves directing the batman to getting the batman when he got when they picked him i remember you and i talking like okay so they want this movie to come out and we were saying like the year after he got announced so in 19 at the latest it was like I think we were really talking about it because it happened in February. We were really talking about it in, okay, so they're going to want to get this movie out as soon as possible. So how are they going to get it out the next year in 18? And Matt Reeves was like, nah, forget all of y'all. I'm taking my time. This is happening when I want it to happen. So I say all that to say, those that are expecting news on a sequel or when are we going to potentially get a sequel and all that, that's not how Matt Reeves works. Warner Brothers is fine with how Matt Reeves works. So I really don't think you get a sequel for what we're 2022, 2025. I think it'll be three years. Um, so with that in mind, 
I'm not even entertaining who's going to be in the sequel because there's no point. I'm looking at three years of my life. I'll be closer to 45 than 35 by the time that movie comes out. I don't care. Uh, as far as the box office goes, there's no way, there's no other way to say that it is a success. It's making goo gobs of money. Um, the interesting thing to me about the box office is that I'm looking at it right now. It's at uh, let me refresh to make sure this is the right number. Uh, yeah, so it's at four four hundred sixty five million worldwide. Uh, that is quite good in two weeks. But my hope going into this, we we asked what will be Warner Brothers' expectations for this movie. And once we asked that question, it seemed clear that their expectations were that that movie was going to make a billion dollars. Right now, sitting at less than half a billion, but, you know, working his way up there. Considering that once April starts, it has real competition, and two weeks into April, it'll be on HBO Max. So it has four weeks left to make, you know, another $500 million. Will it do it? I don't know. I don't think it, I don't think it has to do it because it is a critical, enough of a critical success, enough of a financial success that, and they've already started putting money down on spinoffs and whatnot. Does it have to make a billion dollars? I don't think it has to, but we understand Warner Brothers is what they are, and if it doesn't make a billion dollars, are they going to think it? Are, are they going to think that it disappointed in, in some way? Uh, and that that's kind of what that's kind of what I'm looking at with the box office. Again, I'm not saying that it's not a success. This movie is a success. There should be nobody that says it is not. However, I think Warner Brothers is stupid and really wants a billion dollars. And if they don't get it, I don't know how they're going to react. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's realistic. What was the opening weekend was what, 120, 130? 134. 134, which is about 100 million less uh, than what Spidey did. So like, you've got to kind of got to get keep your expectations in check there. Like that is a huge opening for anything that's come out in the last two years. So like you got to keep everything in perspective of the pandemic and restrictions on people's fears mo- about moving out work in the, in the atmosphere. And also just the way this film is talked about, like this is, this film is talked about openly, like very, in very positive terms by all of the lay people that I know, not, not the movie people, the, the lay people who made an effort to go out and see this movie, who, uh, only also made an effort to go out and see Spider-Man. So like you've you've earned the trust of the audience. You've earned a lot of people's respect and to the point where they went back a second time. Um, you've gotten great praise for your actors. You've gotten great praise for your director and you've got box office success. Whether or not you're able to maintain this momentum for another four weeks and whether or not you hit a billion dollars should not dictate whether or not this movie is what you need it to be. Um, however, I do think it will hit a billion. 
I do think it'll be less than what Joker did, but somewhere in that ballpark. And I think that they'll be over the moon happy about it. And they'll give Matt Reeves whatever he wants to do another one. Um, so, you know, I, I just like, we're going to, we're about to get into all this, this, you know, the regime change of it all. And I appreciate you, uh, hunkering down while I was, uh, working my life away and, uh, hosting a, uh, a solo podcast as you're so eloquent to do on the subject of DC and, and Warner brothers and their handling of their properties. But like, I can't see them any way around them being extremely satisfied and gratified with this because it, as you stated on many occasions, this is exactly what they think they should be doing. Artistic, or tour driven, standalone movies. That's what they think they should be doing. So that, that is, We'll we'll get into what their their plans are and and how how they got here and why I don't believe them. But so I saw this from somebody else on Twitter. So I'm going to pose the question to you and, and to to go with this whole box office talk. So the beginning of May, Doctor Strange is going to come out. How much do you think that's going to do opening weekend? 180 to 200. Okay. So you just said Dr. Strange, who is, by all accounts, I'll give him a C-list Marvel character. That, but because of the times we are in now, he's part of the MCU, which is a longstanding serialized storytelling method in his second movie is going to make more than what is inarguably the flagship cornerstone character of not just DC, but from what Toby Emmerich has said in the past couple of weeks of all the Florida brothers, the most valuable property they have. Dr. Strange is going to make 50 to 70 times, 70 million more than Batman made in his opening weekend. And if that's true, there's no way in the world DC could be fine with that. Well, I mean, it's not just his second movie. It's his sixth MCU appearance, counting Infinity War and Endgame and No Way Home. Um, so that, that's a lot of screen time and development. It's also like comparing and i hate to use this because people bash marvel all the time for being a tv show but like it, it's it's like comparing the pilot in the first season of a show against a show that's been on the air for 10 years <laughs> you know it, it's it's like you you can't expect the audience to buy into the first season of laverne and shirley when happy days is still on the air you know <laughs> like you just you just can't do it like they're they're yes they're two different entities but like we have eight years with you know Popsy and the kids and here we've had like one episode with Laverne and Shirley before they got their spinoff so you know what I'm saying like it's not exact but that's that's where we're at like and the Marvel brand means something the name stands for quality and it stands for 
whatever you want to call it, lactose filmmaking, uh, canned filmmaking, uh, not pop, you know, popcorn cinema, not real cinema, roller coaster cinema, whatever term you want to use, can, uh, uh, cotton candy cinema. Um, they are what they are. And they have the brand name, they have the respect. And Marvel plus Spider Man equaled 300 million, basically. Yeah. And, you know, Marvel plus Doctor Strange plus Multiverse, which by then we'll know what kind of cameos and what kind of things are in this movie. Because, face it, part of what drove interest in No Way Home was the other two Spider-Man coming in and being confirmed once the previews, once the, the, the critic screenings happened. So once word gets out of who is in the movie, that may drive things even more. So that's why I get to that 180, 200 level of film um, because of those factors. And you can't really compare a solo Batman origin story that is, for better or worse, different from every other iteration that we've had of Batman to the longest standing powerhouse of cinema of today. Yeah, so you are correct with everything you said. However, so with everything you just said, a reasonable person should, if if their course of action is to go the way that they did with the Batman, is to forget everything that Marvel is doing, do what you're doing, and be fine with the results. However, because you're basically dealing with your properties are very, very similar because they're both very, very popular comic book properties that people know. So that just with normal people, it drives the, the, the comparisons. You can't get away from comparing one to the other. So the people in charge have to understand that and be good with that. Warner Brothers, to date, has never shown that they've been good with understanding what they are and how that differs from Marvel and how that's going to be different, different for them financially, which you can say whatever you want about art and being artistic and whatnot. Warner Brothers is still a studio and they want money. And money, at the end of the day, money will trump, will trump the art. And they've got the art recognition for the Batman for the most part. But if Doctor Strange makes more money than the Batman, what they should do is realize we did it our way with our, we were our tour driven. This is what we got. We're going to be happy with it. I really think they're going to see it and they're going to be like, why can't we have all of it? They, they have all, they get, even though people don't think of them as artistic as the Batman is, People, the reception is still very good and they make all the money. Why can't we make as much as them with our biggest characters against their smallest characters? I don't think it's right. I think I think they should think of it just like you said, but I don't trust them. And I think they're going to view it the wrong way. And when they view it the wrong way, the wrong people make the wrong decisions. That's kind of what I'm saying with all of that. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Um, I'd agree. It's just, and especially with the history that you're, you're going to lay out here in a second, 
it's hard to put any faith and trust in, in anything that anybody involved in Warner DC DC films on the Warner Brothers studio side has to say. And that's a great contrast, what four regimes in now in the last 10 years versus what Feige and, and that crew, which has pretty much been the same crew for 13, 14 years now. So like right off the bat, there's a creative difference. Even when Disney absorbed them, everybody stayed with their jobs, just got better health insurance. <laughs> so, I mean, like, you know, there's also something to be said for creative consistency over on that side of the, that side of the ball as well. Yeah, but they, that's not the, that's not the kind of creativity that DC values. Mar- Marvel's creativity, well, no matter, I mean, like it or love it, it is producer run. It is produ- more or less, it is producer driven. I do think that filmmakers get more autonomy than people think, particularly in this latter half of the Marvel evolution. But, you know, everything goes through a producer. DC is like, nope, direct it, do what you want. Uh, so it, it, understand what you are, understand what you value. Clearly, you don't value this method. Then you just, you have to be good with what you take and good with all the results. And they just have proven time and again, they are not good with the results they're getting from the decisions. And then they screw it all up. You know, there is a director who would be in a position to speak about both creative processes. And I believe that he recently has spoken about the creative processes of both studios. Chad, what did our good friend James Gunn have to say? Did he say something else different uh, recently? No, I'm talking. Okay. Yeah. Just wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. In general, what he said was that uh, he, he actually had no problem with either of them. Um, pretty much DC has let him do whatever he wants. Marvel, he pretty much does whatever he wants, but he understands the, the constraints where, it, like, you know, it's got to be PG-13, whereas DC is like, go nuts. Uh, he has said that DC has, I mean, Marvel has only given him, like, like one or two notes on the first Guardians and not really anything for the other ones, nothing that he had to follow. Whereas DC, again, auteur, do whatever you want. Uh, so much in the fact, with, so so he like he, the way James Gunn talks about it, he likes working for both. Now, my, I think what you set me up for there on that one, and I've said it in the past couple of shows, is that uh, in James Gunn making the Peacemaker, in the very end of the Peacemaker, he brought in the Justice League. And again, he he wrote it, he sent it off to DC. They're like, cool. And then he shoots it. And when he when he when they see it, they're like, oh God, the Justice League is in there. What is this? And they cut out two of the members. They cut out Cyborg, they cut out Batman. Um, and yeah, so it wasn't. The, the Wonder Woman actors and the Superman actors were never Henry Cavill and Gal Gadot. They knew they couldn't get those. They got, uh, he originally got Ezra Miller and, or no, he originally had Jason Momoa and Ezra Miller said he would do it. 
he heard about it and said he would do it. So that's how he got those two. But Warner Brothers, for real, for real, didn't realize the Justice League was in it until they saw what he had shot, even though they had seen the script and let him do it. So that, that to me, kind of like encapsulates what they are. Like they can see the stuff, but until they really see it, they don't know what the hell they, they don't know what they're letting people do. Which is how you get uh, Zack Snyder's Dawn, Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. Yeah, I, I, I want to say that they are better than they are than they were then, because when and when Batman and Superman is happening, that's when Kevin Sujahara is over it, and they're really more concerned with pushing the things out instead of like understanding what what they are pushing out, which is how we ended up with the Justice League mess we got. But even still, I don't understand how anyone, anyone knew what Zack Snyder was doing for the first meeting of Batman and Superman on screen, live action, and thought that that was a good idea. Even uh, Chris Terrio, who was brought in when Affleck officially joined, he, like, he said here recently, like, you know the script was worse than what I than what we had. I'm here trying to clean up the mess for you, and Warner Brothers is giving him those. I wish I had that particular article in front of me, but it was it was something, and it's like really like really really egregious against character like basic core character concepts, and he's cleaning it up, and they don't even recognize that they had they needed to clean this stuff up. So they were really bad then. Uh, I don't know. I don't think they're as bad now, but again, I just don't trust them. So I just think they're just kind of bad in general. Well, talk about some of those regime changes and the way that things have kind of metamorphosized and changed over the years over there. Because I think it it leads directly into why we have a lack of faith and trust in in things post the Batman, even though the Batman's a huge success. Right, right. So this this came up and uh, for a little behind the scenes when we when we have rundowns, we'll, I'll, we'll each try to put the links and stuff in there. But this particular thing started with uh, the week. Well, actually, the day uh, the 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 Monday, the Sunday or the Monday after the Batman was released, Warner Brothers current head Toby Emmerich laid out. Uh, the vision for the future of DC, and I'll just read what he says. Uh, the secret, the secret of the movie business is quality. It's the best business strategy for both theatrical motion pictures and superhero movies. The movies don't have to all have the same tone, or interlock with other DC movies, or have an Easter egg that sets up with an up another film. Quality is the most important factor for a studio. And the biggest thing you can do to influence quality is the filmmaker that you hire. So that's his thought on DC going forward. It, it's a whole lot of stuff to say. We believe in auteurs and forget shared universes. We don't need that. We, we just get auteurs to do their thing. And that's the mark of quality. That's how we want to go forward. Now, if you look at DC's slate, you'd be like, well, how does that work with what he said? We'll, 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 we'll get to that. So that, that led me going down the rabbit hole of we get the same kind of speech 
after ever after every big DC movie, whether it's successful or not, we get this kind of speech, and basically it kind of goes all back and forth. Uh, so, like in 2015, Diane Nelson, who was the head of DC at the time, she's like, "We're driven uh, on single universal characters with connected storylines." Oh, she's saying that a single, a single universal character with connected storylines can hand up, end up handcuffing creators again. Not the shared story, uh, shared universe method, but more our tour stuff. 2016. Another change of direction. 2016 is after Batman vs Superman came out, so uh, charging full speed ahead with plans for its DC cinematic universe while coinciding the movies to date have fallen. Uh, oh, it's, this is saying it fell short uh, creatively. So they're recognizing that that method kind of messed up, but we're still going to charge for it. So. Then 2019 happens, and they're basically saying they're saying both sides. They're saying that they want a shared universe, but they also want auteurs. And that's when they get uh, that's when they bring up the whole Flash thing the first time. And this is that was in 2019, the Flash movie that again has been kicked down the road another year. And then 2020 was the latest one before this last one. And they're saying, let's rethink the whole universe thing. They're not giving up on the idea of con continuity, but they want to uh, de-emphasize the idea that all these flicks are occupying the same space. So again, 2020, they're back to let's not do a shared universe let's just do because it might hinder some stuff let's do what we do now you all of that is said but when you look at their um their release slate like the the release slate that was 2022 that is no more but originally it was the batman standalone movie then you have black adam which is, I mean, if you want to say it's standalone, fine, but it is a character that was shown in the first Shazam movie. And from all intents and purposes, it seems like it's still linked to said Shazam movie. So and Shazam is part of the connected universe. Then you had, uh, what was the next one that was after that? The Flash, the Flash that got moved to next year, which is again, part of that shared universe. And the Flash is the one that's supposed to reset everything into whatever they're supposed to be doing next. And then you have Aquaman 2, again, part of the shared universe. So you have one standalone, three shared universe movies. And your slate still includes the next Shazam movie. You have all of these DC, uh, these Warner Brother Mac. HBO Max spinoffs with Batgirl and Blue Beetle, which was HBO Max, but now is Warner Brothers that, from everything we understand, they take place in some form of the shared universe that happened from Flashpoint. So you, you're saying, you're like, for Toby and Rick to come out and say, we're going back to our tour-driven, 
when half of your slate is still shared universe. What you what do you why what are you saying, man? What what is what is really going on? And that's been their whole thing. They say one thing, they change it to another, and when their movies come out, they're incredibly reactionary. So there's no sense of consistency across the board. And because there's no consistency, there is really what there's really no um, the audience doesn't give them the benefit of doubt on any of the things they do. And I know we don't, as I just said, we really shouldn't compare stuff to Marvel, but they do draw the most comparison. Marvel has that benefit of doubt. People are willing to to go wherever Marvel takes them because they trust them to give them a consistent product, no matter what you think of that product. DC, on the other hand, even if they want us to do our tours, okay, they haven't given us consistent movies with their our tours. Even, even since the whole Snyder debacle where they've gone back to our tours one of the three times they said it, yeah, you had Joker, but again, if you want to go all tour driven, you had Wonder Woman 84, which was not great. And the Batman is good, but uh it had there's there's been they haven't got a string of hits with those. So they it's just really frustrating because they don't know what they want. Well, they kind of know what they want. They don't want to commit to what they want, which is to just be all tour driven. Because in the back of their minds, they understand being all tour driven is not getting the result that Marvel's getting. So they continue with the shared universe thing, even though they kind of really don't want to do it. And it shows in most of those shared universe outings, and they don't succeed as much as they should. So, really and truly, what they should do, and you know, it sucks for me because I don't want it. They should probably just, you know, after this play comes out, just be like, forget everything else. The Batman 2 is the next thing we're doing, and then we're just going on tours with the rest of them, forget everything else they have before. But they're not going to do it because they don't trust their approach. And that's what all this comes down to they don't trust their approach. No, they, they don't. And that's that they're also just trying to find whichever the way the wind takes them to the most money. And that's the problem. The Marvel way has brought Marvel money, but they also think the art, the Artur driven method has also driven them to money and success with Mad Max Fury Road and with uh, um, the Joker. So like they've, they've had success with our tour driven artistic cinema but they've also had success seeing other studios as success with the shared universe model so they're just trying to find whatever the quickest pathway is to financial success on a regular basis not financial success once every five films financial success every film and critical success every film and part of that's been part of the problem they haven't found the right sweet spot yet and you know when you vacillate in the wind people in are inconsistent people are going to just assume inconsistency until you prove them otherwise and changing 
regime heads and changing creative directions, like I said, say what you want to, but it's been the same producers, the same group of writers, the same group of creatives over at Marvel the entire time. Um, and like, there is something to be said for that consistency. Iger was at Disney for how many years? You know, th there's something to be said for consistency at the leadership positions. And DC and Warner Brothers simply hasn't had that, whether that be changing who it's owned by multiple times over the last five years, whether that's changing who runs their DC division multiple times over the last five years, to who, who runs their movie division, period, over the last five years. The introduction of HBO Max and the streaming service and the streaming service side and the theatrical side not really communicating as well to e with each other. The debacle about the decision to move everything to day and date last year. Like, there's, there's not been that steady guiding hand that is a presence that guides you through the tough times and makes the tough calls and takes ownership of them. It's, we're going to make a call. We're going to hope that it's right. And if it's not right, we're all going to lose our jobs and we'll be, you know, working security at the front gate because we'll no longer be the heads of the studio. Like that, that doesn't work. You know, you have to have consistency and a vision and a plan like it or not, you know, uh, Fox gave, James Cameron a check. Disney did not revoke that check when they bought Fox. They let Cameron go down to Australia. They let him spend all his money. They let him make all of his movies and they're going to release at least two of them. And that is because Cameron has a distinct vision for what he wants to do. Man was supposed to fail with Titanic and he didn't. Was supposed to fail with Avatar and he didn't. He's supposed to fail with Avatar too. We'll see what happens. But that, but it's been a steady stream of, of James Cameron being the presiding hand over that Avatar franchise and driving it. There isn't that guy at Warner Brothers. And I think that has made a distinct difference, not just over the DC creative, but over the studio as a whole. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's, it, you know, you, do, you bring up a good point with, you know, saying that their producer credits, their uh, creators like Feige and he has Nate Moore and uh, I think it's Trini Tran. And uh, there's some other ones that I cannot remember off the top of my head, but they've been there through the whole thing. Warner Brothers, if you, again, if you look at it, those things that I talked about, those dates, um, I think Diane Nelson is quoted twice but the other two times are two different producers. And I'm, I'm yeah, more than... You, you remember when our, when our DC boy was supposed to save all of humanity? Jeff Johns was going to rescue everybody from the, the perilous depths of hell and bring us to a new 52 generation? Yeah, that, that was one I was trying to find. I specifically remember that one because it was like, a, I want to say it was a joint interview between him and Diane Nelson about what DC was going forward. And and that one, I'm pretty sure it was the, the shared universe method at that one. But that would have been in 2017, uh, a year after they had one of their other thoughts for what was going on. So their their leadership has has changed through the whole thing. 
because you know Kevin Sujahara was the uh, Warner was um, whatever the parent company is. Uh, he was yeah, went from there's... went from AT and T. AT and T sold it off to Discovery, and Discovery Plus and HBO Max are now going to merge. Uh, even even before that, when they were still with yeah, it was still with AT and T. Um, but Sujahara was Warner Brothers. It was Time then, Warner, and then it was AT and T, and then it was Discovery. Plus. Yes, so he was he was the big CEO, uh, and the producers under them had like. I forget who it was before Diane Nelson, but Diane Nelson was the president of DC Comics. I think they made a DC Entertainment. They kind of folded everything in. And then at some point, um, she was working with Jeff Johns, and then Jeff Johns and I want to say Peter Berg got it at some point, and then it changed over to Walter Hamada, who has it right now. And I'm pretty sure I'm missing a, a few changeovers here and there. But saying all those names, the core producers, the, those head head people, have been in flux through this whole time, and then you add into that because you are tour driven. The individual films producers are always going to be different. There is no consistency for for like top down creative forces, and I but they get they they get it right sometimes. Like I think they got it right with Shazam. They got it right with the first Wonder Woman. They definitely, I think they got it right with the Batman. But if, but in those instances, they get strong directors, and the strong directors makes the movies they want to make, and that, and those movies are successful. But then you get in the, but then you can get in cases like you had a strong director that did Wonder Woman. She came back for Wonder Woman eighty four. Not so much. Um, we'll see what the sequels are for Shazam and and Aquaman. Uh, but that's that's the downside to strict auteurs is that if you know they swing and miss, then it's a big it's a big wolf for everybody. But and but if that's the if that's the way you want to go, that you got to take the hits with the the misses and and just be good with it. Indeed. Um, it's just going to be interesting to see uh, the progress that they make after the, the as you documented on your solo podcast, the changeover of the um, of the the slate for 2022 after marketing it so heavily opening weekend for the Batman. I, uh, I saw the film the second time uh, a week ago tonight, um, the Monday of release weekend. Apparently that change the day before that changeover was announced. And that ad was still playing Monday night um, on my screening, wow. hyping up the 2022 slate. So, uh, so yeah, um, it's just going to be interesting to see where we we go from there. Uh, so, Chad, your thoughts on the rumors going around that have been going around for a long time? I don't know how this became news, but there was a point in time where the Obi Wan Kenobi series was shut down. Um, they went in, they reworked it. Word at the time was it had some similarities to the Mandalorian. They wanted to work those out. And so they shut down production and then shut down the, the, the project. Then they brought the project back online and we got what, it, what we're getting in six weeks. 
apparently word got out today that was going around before when they were in before they went into shutdown that apparently they were going to do mall darth mall mm-hmm. uh this does not surprise anybody any the five people alive who saw solo uh no know that Maul was involved there at the end in a in a big reveal that God that Kara story like I could write a book on how like just give me that thing um the duality of fate of a sliding door man it just it's right there it's it's more artistic and dramatic and character driven stuff than anything that's been in any Star Wars movie that damn sliding door but like how this is a thing now I don't understand but it was news two years ago when they shut down production the first shut the development down the first time they were going to do mall and they changed it to vader and they took mall out and so your thoughts sir on what is now fresh news this cycle about ray park having signed on having his scenes cut reworking the show oh i i can't help but be disappointed because i um mall has evolve into what a lot of people think of as like an Obi-Wan villain. And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, the Clone Wars show and whatnot. Clone Wars and, I, and Rebels. And he cut him in half. Literally cut the dude in half. True, lengthwise true. the second time. So bringing him back was going to be a little bit more of a challenge. Well, I mean, they, they brought him back for, uh, for those shows because it, it, it takes place after he gets cut in half. And as you see in Solo... I yeah, think, the, I'm not talking about the spider legs. Yeah. I'm talking about when he battles him with the spider legs in Rebels. Oh, of, he literally cuts the dude in half standing up. Oh, okay. See, I didn't know that part. This is yeah, what they, they meet again in Rebels and like he has his spider legs and everything. And he chops those spider legs off and then he goes right down the middle splitting in 50-50. <laughs> see, I knew they met in Rebels again. and But when, when it was on Rebels... Um, I hadn't seen any of Rebels, so I wanted to watch all of Rebels because I'm a completionist like that to get to that part, and I've never watched it. So, uh, but yeah, that, that's how I am with contemplating trying to get through What If before Doctor Strange because I have a feeling we're going to see some of those variants pop up. Yeah, I just haven't done it yet. You should just go ahead and do that, but see, that's only what eight episodes. Rebels is like three four. seasons, yeah. And before I need to do that, I need to do Clone Wars. And that is like, what? Seven seasons. Yeah, seven seasons. And I know that's like 20 minutes, but still, that's like, I got to wrap my mind around that. And it's not like I can just press play and go about my business with those because they have a funky order. And if you play them in order, there are things you're going to miss because like this episode, the, the really the episode that comes before this, it's like in season four and you're in season two. It's stupid stuff like that. But all that to say, so the, I think those encounters in those cartoons, plus what we saw in uh, in Revenge of the Sith. I'm not Revenge of the Sith. Uh, Phantom whatever, Menace. Yeah, Phantom Menace. Has linked Obi-Wan and Darth Maul as like, you know, rivals. Uh, the, the, the yin and yang. So I was... I did think we were going to see uh, Maul in in Obi Wan series, and I am kind of disappointed that we won't because you know it would. It's one thing seeing him in the cartoon, and the cartoon is canon, but to see 
Ewan McGregor and uh, Ray Park again in those roles on screen together would have been, you know, something that I never thought I would have seen. But I, I kind of get it in that, do you want Maul and Vader in the show? That's what, eight episodes? That does feel like... Yeah, I, I think you need to do one or the other. I think you do one or the other because I think if you don't, if you do Maul, the story is different than what you're going to get with Vader. Because what you're going to get with Vader is essentially a story where the Inquisitor is sent. The Inquisitor figures out who it is. She relays that to her superior. Her superior then tries to go after Obi-Wan and fails. And then Vader is then alerted that they have found Obi-Wan. And then you get Obi-Wan and Vader at the end. I think that's the structure. I think if it's a Ray Park as as uh, as uh, Darth Maul in the in the show, there are no Inquisitors. There are no Empire. There is no anything. It's him being a crime lord, a la what Boba Fett was supposed to be, and Obi Wan figuring out and chasing him down. Like, I think they're two different shows, and I think ultimately what drew them to this was the the inherent drama and the canon flexibility there would have been some gymnastics to do with 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 maul and bringing him in and you'd have to change where the show takes place and at what time and all that and it would have again been another one of those i'm going to take a thing for the Filoni did in rebels and make it you know uh, live action um but here like we're it's never implied that the meeting between vader and obi-wan on the death star first death star in which obi-wan yields himself there's no cannot uh canical there's nothing in canon of the films to suggest of the films to suggest that that's the only time they met after mustafar and so you have that kind of canon room to say that you know they met again at another point in time earlier before that encounter. And that gives you an opportunity to bring Hayden Christensen back, who's looking to redeem himself. It gives you an opportunity to be, to do Obi-Wan versus Vader again. It introduces the Inquisitors. It does all those things that they want to do. So ultimately, I think Vader and Maul are two villains of two completely different shows. I'm not as much, I'm not up on all my Star Wars lore. I do seem to remember that um, there are sections of the fandom that don't believe there's a way for Obi-Wan to meet Darth Vader again uh, based on what happened in A New Hope. I haven't watched A New Hope in a while, so I can't, I, I can't say for sure, but I'm going to say that you know Lucasfilm did their due diligence and found a way to, to eke it in there as best as they can and I think there's going to be a suspension of... Well, I mean, I, I, I think there's the line in the, in the original A New Hope where he goes, and we meet again, old friend. Like, I think it's something to that extent, like we meet again. And again can be taken as a rematch of what happened to Mustafar. Uh-huh. But it can also be taken as, you know, a rematch of something that happened at another point in time on Tantooine. Yeah, maybe something else that like when 
Obi-Wan is telling Luke about Vader. Oh, that you that. mean where he lies the entire time? I mean, there there is that. He was lying at that. Uh, I don't know. It just seems like there's something in the movies that people are like, really like, he can't meet Obi-Wan. And I vaguely remember feeling that way like years ago. But now, I mean, at this point now, I'm like, whatever. I want to see, you know, Obi-Wan and Vader fight in close to prime in real life. So it won't be, I mean, the first, the fight in, in A New Hope, they're handling the, the lightsabers like broadswords. Broad so it's slow and heavy and, you know, fitting for old men. But, you know, even though Ewan McGregor's in his 50s, He's we've seen what Jedi are now. So that fight's going to be completely different. I, and I do want to see that. I don't think it should be quite as acrobatic as their uh volcano fight, which is not so acrobatic, but there's a whole bunch of flippy of the lightsaber things that yeah, you might not need to do. Just give us a, a healthy medium of these dudes, and I think everybody will be happy. Yeah, and and I think that that's that's kind of the the way that they they're going to go about it. And again, it's it's going to be mainly about the cameos and things. Yeah, see, uh, Obi Wan is here. The Force is with him. That's what Vader says. Um, don't underestimate the power of the Force. A tremor in the force the last time I felt it, it was in the presence of my old master. Um, ben hurries along one of the tunnels leading to the hangar where the, where the pirate ship waits. Just before he reaches the hangar, Darth Vader slip, steps into view at the end of the tunnel. Not ten feet away, Vader lights his saber. Ben also ignites his and steps forward slowly forward. I've been waiting for you, Obi-Wan. We meet again at last. The circle is now complete. Ben Kenobi moves forward, moves with elegant ease into a classical offensive position. The fearsome dark knight takes the defensive stance. When I left you, I was but the masked learner. Now I am the master. Only a master of evil, says Ben Kenobi. The two galactic warriors stand perfectly still for a few moments, sizing one another up and waiting for the right moment. Ben seems uh, to be under increasing pressure and strain as if an invisible weight were being placed upon him. He shakes his head and blinking tries to clear his eyes. Ben makes a sudden lunge at the huge warrior, but is uh, checked by a lightning movement of the Sith. A masterful slash stroke by Vader is blocked by the old Jedi. Another Jedi's blow is blocked and then countered. Ben moves around the Dark Lord, starts backing into the massive uh, uh, starts backing into the massive uh, starship hangar. The two powerful warriors stand motionless for a few moments with laser swords locked in midair, creating a low buzzing sound. Uh, your powers are weak, old man. You can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can ever imagine. Their lightsabers to continue to meet in combat. Yeah, there's there's nothing there so much. So I don't know. I don't know what. We meet again, old friend. 
Yeah, that that is very vague. That gives you uh, a whole lot of opening. Indeed. All right, Chad. Well, uh, that'll about do it for this week's podcast. But uh, I wanted to take a a rare moment of opportunity here um, to not only wish everybody a happy 316, which is coming, um, and and many stunners and many beers will be had in Dallas, I'm sure. I expect any Shane McMahon merchandise you may accrue to head my way, by the way. Um, but um, I wanted to take this opportunity uh, to thank Chad um, for what he does uh, for this podcast. Um, and for me, um, I have a very crazy and chaotic life sometimes. And uh, Chad's always there to, to ground me, but also to help me, uh, help me work through things by talking about film for an hour and a half or two hours every, every week. And, uh, it's always the highlight of my week. And, and I'm, and I'm thankful to Chad for going on this journey with me for the last seven years and, and for many more years to come, hopefully. And, uh, for his editing skills, which make a uh, quick work of us sounding professional and, and upright, uh, the way that we do. So I want to thank taking a, a moment to publicly acknowledge Chad for what he does for the movies on the brain podcast and, for his efforts to constantly bring the people content, even when I cannot. And B, I, I really appreciate it. You don't have to thank me. It's my pleasure to do it. I love doing it. Uh, as you know, I have fun doing this. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm here to do this whenever, uh, and I'll do whatever I can, but I thank you for the kind of words, even though you don't ever have to say it, I'm always going to do it. I appreciate it, Chad. So that'll about do it for this week's podcast. We're hopeful to have our good friend Jim David on later in the week to talk Oscar preview and uh, Moon Knight preview. Uh, so we're looking forward to that conversation, looking forward to getting his his thoughts on the first footage from Killers of the Flower Moon uh, debuting and also, of course, his his thoughts and feelings on on what is coming as far as changes to the, the Comic-Con and uh, all of the conventions that are now bringing people back into the fray. So we'll certainly get his, uh, his thoughts on that. But uh, if you want to follow, keep up with this podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. I am at BCW Tiger fan. At the Mets theory. Thank you very much. And all hail Mark Sanchez. Oh boy. That only took like five years. So, so <laughs> let me ask Chad, answer me this. Yeah. So, so was Joe Oliva too busy sitting in his beach chair, soaking up the rays on the Florida Gulf Coast in his condo to come out and do a victory lap? Because that man just sent out, you know, the former system president that everybody hated to do a victory lap and tell everybody that they wanted to do this five years ago, but the board of trustees wouldn't let them. So, like, where's Oliva? Where's my, where's my homeboy Oliva doing his, uh, his victory tour? <sighs> Oh man. <laughs> um I love I the what, line free will wade, free him from what? For, yeah, for real. Like uh I mean I know there are people that like Will Wade. I have I have very close friends that really like Will Wade because uh they've given him uh championship their their championship rings. He's got one of those. I get that, but uh I mean when I looked at the charges, it's like, 
yeah, there, there's no way he could keep his job. I under so I kind of understood not finding him five years ago, kind of barely because it's like there's a whole bunch of other people and nobody else is getting fired, so you didn't pull the you didn't pull the trigger. But the stuff with the fiance and him paying her outright, and I and if I'm right, if I'm correct, all that stuff happened after this the the wiretap stuff. You can't really keep him. There's no way. I know. I understand the keeping the the not keeping him thing. Uh, my thing is that Ira very distinctly remember that um, that night against Vanderbilt where they were going to win the SEC uh, outright for the first time in ages. And I remember the Lions Den as uh, as uh, the president uh, described it. Uh, that they walked into and they're viciously booed in the free will Wade stuff and all of the rest of it. And the article and, and what, what he said um, just reaffirmed what I thought had happened, which was LSU didn't want to be legally liable if nothing ever came out. So like they didn't want to preemptively get rid of him and then have him turn around and sue for wrongful termination, which is essentially what happened with Kevin Ollie over at, at, uh, at UConn who uh, also uh, got into some issues and was let go, but was let go before the process was allowed to play out. And he actually won a, a, a wrongful termination suit it took him six years, but he actually did win a wrongful termination suit against UConn. So I, I thought that at the time, what they were doing was basically saying, we don't have the evidence. We have a bunch of yeah. hearsay. We don't have the evidence. And, uh, and the president basically comes out and says, we asked the FBI for the files. They wouldn't give them to us. If they'd have given us their files with all this stuff in it five years ago, we would have fired him. But at the time, there was too much protection. He was too well liked, and we couldn't make the move. And ultimately, Oliva, he also confirmed that Oliva lost his job because he didn't want to reinstate Wade. Um, there's, a, there's a story, um, there's a story in that, that the president tells, uh, Alexander tells, that um, about a dinner that occurred at Juvenile's and in which several members of the board uh, told him that if they wanted to leave it out, I mean, it's it's painted it's painted almost Godfather esque. <laughs> They're all sitting around this table, and one of them writes down on a napkin the fig the name and the financial number they are willing to pay for their their guy to come be come be ad, and and just basically slide it on a slide it on a napkin to to Alexander and are like make this happen, and like Aliva and Alexander got tied at the hip through the Les Miles thing. And let's face it, using university.edu email addresses to conduct that kind of business is just stupid. Mm -hmm. But it also gave us a window into what was actually going on through a Freedom of Information Act request. And it showed us that Aliva, again, had it right. He, he wanted to do it. He had the reason to do it. He felt like once you got the information out there about what Les was doing, 
that people would be on their side and they could get through whatever the short-term PR hit was going to be. And he got shut down. And this is another instance where he, he knew what was right. He wanted to let go of Wade. He, you know, he wanted to, he knew that the wiretap was probably legit and he got overruled. And it just shows that it, it shows the politics of this place in terms of athletics and how, how it's a necessity for you to be a Joe Dean or a uh, Scott Woodward who is one of the boys and knows how to play that game very well. Whereas, um, you know, and Skip, Skip was a good old boy too, but Skip, knew, Skip was just there to fundraise. He was there to fundraise and he was there to get the, state, the baseball stadium built, which he did. Um, but uh, Joe Dean and Scott Woodward are different from Oliva in, in that they both know how to play the political system. He didn't. And eventually Dean retired because he was alienating enough of those folks and they were ready to move on. And Woodward has now replaced three-fourths of the athletic department. So now everything solely rests on his shoulders. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, you and I have talked many times about the hiring practices of this man. Um, I fully expect him to have already made a phone call to Will to uh, um, to Roy Williams, uh, the man who invented fake classes for kids to attend and got nothing, no show calls for it at all. <laughs> Uh, I, I anticipate him making a call to Roy Williams as national championship coach. I also anticipate him making a phone call to Penny Hardaway, who is uh, also had a little bit of NCAA issues over in Memphis, but uh, finally got them back into the NCAA tournament this year with, uh, with for the first time since 2016. So I think those are two names that you'll look at just simply because he was going to care about the NCAA stuff. He's just going to try and go out and get the biggest name he can and pay him as much money as he can. Uh, the thing with that is because it seems like the NCAA is probably going to nuke the basketball program to high hell. It's like, does that hamper who he can get? Especially with his whole, you know, at this point, his reputation is he goes and gets the biggest name. Uh, like all other reasons be damned. The biggest name is what he's going to get. So big names typically don't want to deal with, you know, NCAA scorching of the earth. So how does he offset that? I don't know. Uh, and I don't, you know, I don't know basketball as much as I know football. So I have no idea who's in, who's out, who's the, who's the hot name or whatnot. I'm just curious to see what he's going to do because, you know, like I've, I've said, before, I've kind of said before, I'm not this dude's biggest fan. And I think he's, of the big hires he's made, you know, which is football, women's basketball, and baseball, I do, I do think, and it took me a while to come around on one of these, that uh, baseball and women's basketball are probably the right hires. Football. I don't think there's any doubt Mulkey's the right hire. The issue was Mulkey's reputation and her price tag and also her stance on what Baylor uh, did with their sexual uh, allegations that she felt were, you know, a certain way. 
yeah, that was that, and that was pretty much where I was with her. And I kind of, you know, I still am with her, but like I, I know that I've seen the results, and you know, I've heard her speak, and I get it. Why, like, watching her speak in the basketball context, I completely get it, and I'm like, okay. I want to go play for her, and I can't play with the damn. I understand. I understand. She is the right hire. Uh, she's the right hire to get them on track. As long as nothing controversial comes up, where she can insert her stances into it, but her stances play well in Baton Rouge. So, you know, uh, we'll see about football. But I don't know what he's going to do with with basketball, but I'm, I, I I watch all of his moves more closely now just because, you know, I just don't trust the dude. Yeah, I just think that um, the reason that Williams makes a lot of sense to me is because while he does have the huge academic issue with North Carolina, um, he's a multi-time national champion. He's retired. And he could come in for a two-year rebuild or a three-year rebuild and keep the program in a stable position until you're able to get a Van Chancellor. That, that was the idea when you hired Van, was that, you know, you were going to, Van was going to transition you from Pokey to whatever was next. Because God bless Coach Starkey, and he did a, gr- a good job over it in Texas A&M. Um, he was not going to be the long-term answer here at LSU. I, you can make the argument he should have been, given his ties to Sue Gunner and his ties to Pokey Chapman, but also those could have been his undoing here. Um, like, I, I just – Williams makes a lot of sense to me because he can be here. He can uphold the program for a couple of years. He can add to his win total. And, you know, I think it'll be a one- or two-year thing as far as like sanctions, postseason ban for one year, uh, recruiting sanction, recruiting restrictions, um, and you know a fine, but I, I don't think it's going to be the death penalty by any stretch of the imagination. No, um, no, I don't. I don't think it's death penalty. No, but I do think that uh, you know Penny is an interesting case because he is Mister AAU, like he is the poster child for knowing all the guys, knowing all the runners, knowing all the coaches, knowing all the players. Like he's brought in some stellar recruiting classes to Memphis, the likes of which they haven't seen since Calipari was there. I mean, he is considered the up and coming, like, you know, what Kevin, what Kevin Ollie was at, at, at UConn after, uh, after Calhoun left, you know, that, that kind of superstar guy who knows all the AAU guys and all the NBA uh, G league guys and, and can recruit his rear end off legally. <laughs> and, and so I think it's, that would be a name to also watch. Um, the other thing about the uh, coaching job is that I'd argue the Florida coaching basketball coaching job is a better job mm-hmm. than the LSU basketball coaching job. And the Florida job also came open this weekend as Mike White took the Georgia job, which is a lateral move, if not a downgrade in my opinion. But, he, but that's what he did. So now Florida has an open head coach position. And, you know, they've had a, a, another successful six-year run um, 
White was not as successful as Billy Donovan was, but I don't think you can ask two national championships and multiple Sweet 16 and Final Four appearances out of anybody. Um, but they also have an open coaching vacancy. State, I think, is also going to part ways with uh, Ben Howland. Uh, so State may also have a head, an open head coaching job as well. Uh, but I think the Florida job and the LSU job, the Florida job is just better. And so I think any viable candidates for the, both jobs are going to take Florida over LSU given the circumstances. Yeah, I can't argue with that. I mean, I, again, don't know much about basketball, but when I saw that news yesterday about uh, the Florida coach going to Georgia, I was like, why would you leave Florida to go to Georgia? And my first thought was, just what I, off of what I know was, he must not be doing as well for Florida, and he's probably going to get fired. So get out before. It was it was a Dan Mullen situation where Mullen was winning and winning at a good clip, just like Muschamp, just to, just like uh, McElwain was winning and winning at a good clip. But for those folks, they have the the best coaches in their history ingrained in their mind. Billy Donovan is their best coach. The court is named after Billy Donovan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, they went to multiple sweet, the sweet 16 elite eight or final four, what seemed like almost every year under Don, they had some really great years, just the same way under Spurrier. What one national championship, multiple undefeated seasons, multiple sec East championships, multiple sec championship game appearances, multiple sugar bowls under Spurrier. Right. And then Spurrier leaves to go to the NFL and they get stuck with the Ron Zooks and the Will Muschamps and the Jim McElwain's, none of which actually, you know, get them to where they want to be. And the thing is, like, McElwain took them to two straight SEC championship, SEC championship games and a couple of BCS games. Same thing with, um, same thing with, uh, with Mullen. Mullen took them to a couple of New Year's Six Bowls and a couple of NCAA uh, SEC championship games where he played Bama better than anybody else on the planet. He played Bama better than anybody he played him this year, except for George. Um, and he still got fired. <laughs> so, like, those folks are almost as crazy, if not more so, than the Bama folks. The Bama folks, once Saban retires, will go back to being what they were under Mike, you know, Mike DeBose and, and those guys, where it's like they'll win the FCC here or there, but they're not going to be what they are, what they were under Bear. And what they are now, which is national championship contenders, automatic SEC West winners every year. Uh, and they'll be okay with that for about 10 years. And then they'll start howling for another once in a generation coach. But I don't think, I don't think they're going to be okay with it for 10 years. At this point, uh, like, I know what the Bear did. And I know that was a whole different era. But like now, in this era, when it is clear that we have the best conference and they run the best conference and they, and for them losing in the college football playoffs is a disappointment, even though they make it every goddamn year. I don't think they're going to, whoever comes in next has like a two year grace period. And other than, and then after that, they're going to be, I think they're going to be more loud and more obnoxious except not to everyone else, they will turn inward. And I like it when it turns inward. They can be obnoxious with each other as much as they want. Fight all they want amongst each other because that means they're not worth the shit and they don't like being not worth the shit. But it, it's, I think it's going it's, it's to be a tough go for them after saving leaves. And I, I, for one, 
am ready for it. I am tired of my dark overlord. I want him to go away. You're too old, man. Go like enjoy your grandbabies. Yeah, that that lake, uh, the lake in Georgia, just never seems to get used anything more than a couple of weeks during the summer. Um, but any, but uh, it's just, I think it's going to be interesting because I think he's going to go after a name, but I don't know what kind of name he's going to be able to get. And I really just think that that Roy Williams would be a good option, as you know, because you can't touch. You know, there have been rumors about a couple of big uh, programs going after Patino again uh, for, you know, after doing his stint in Turkey, he got picked up by Iona and took them to the NCAAs last year. Um, like there, there are rumors about p- big programs looking at Patino again. You can't touch him. If you're LSU, <laughs> uh, you can't, you can't go after, uh, uh, can't go after any, either one of the Miller boys. Both are kind of radioactive at this point. Um, you know, you know, I I think Shaka is doing okay things in in uh, up in uh, Marquette, but I don't think that he's like lighting the world on fire in his first year. He made the tournament, which is good, but he's not what he was at VCU. Um, you know, they they just extended the guy at UCLA. They just extended the guy at USC. Um, they the guy from Loyola Chicago went to Texas uh, and his replacement got them back to the NCAA tournament again this year. Uh, so he may be a name that comes up. Um, I, I mean, Duke's already got their replacement for Krzyzewski. Maybe if you want to take a look at some of the people on staff there that, you know, are disappointed that they didn't get the job. Um, you know, there are, there are a couple of different places you could look, you could, you could try to go get, you know, convince uh, Billy Donovan to come back to college. I don't think you're going to be very successful. Um, but I mean, again, all options have to be on the table with this guy because he's nuts. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he's nuts. Um, he's nuts when it's somebody else's money, not his. <laughs> um, I don't think it would happen. But the idea of Roy Williams as like a two-year stopgap, I think. If you have somebody like that or of a similar stature that's willing to come in and be like, look, I'm not doing this forever, but I'll do this right now, keep you on track, keep you afloat, give me two, three years, and then I'm out and you find whoever the next guy, next hot guy is, that that is probably the best case scenario. Um, is Scott thinking like that? I I think he would only be thinking like that in the case of it being Roy Williams, because again, it fits into his MO of big name. And then he would be in a situation where he gets his big name. He knows he only has them for a short amount of time and they get some time to work with the program, get it back on that track from whatever sanctions the NCAA is going to hand out and then be set for the future because people are going to want to come play for Roy Williams, no matter what the, uh, the NCAA stuff is. Indeed. So let's talk to movies in five. Okay. Wait, 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 hold on. Can give it like 10 seconds and then do your countdown. Just let it be silent for like 10 seconds. So I can know when to cut this. <laughs> 